Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read uh, some of chapter 8 and some of chapter 9 this morning. So if you'll follow along with me, we'll begin in chapter 8, verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. No, let's read verse 9, since I've got it circled in my Bible. We better read it. Verse 9 through verse 15, and we'll jump down to verse 24 and read through chapter 9, verse 5. I'll read out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Then verse 24, Therefore, show to them and be for the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that a case I was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready." Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. We are making our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 8 very deliberately because there's been a lot of poor preaching from this area in our history, I think. A lot of poor understanding, a lot of abuse of it, I believe. And we have really a wonderful description of what Christian giving looks like. We started off by talking about ownership several weeks ago. And we looked at the Macedonian example that here amongst the people that didn't have much, they were credited here with giving much. And we look at quantities and realize that God's idea of much is different than ours. That maybe the measure of our giving isn't how much we put in the plate or in the box in our case, but how much is left over that we keep in our pocket. That the Macedonians who weren't asked to give begged to give, They were ignored because they didn't have much to meet the great need that was there. And so they had to beg, don't leave us out of this wonderful opportunity to minister to the saints in Jerusalem and Judea through giving. And we learned a lesson of ownership. 
recognizing that the first thing the Macedonians did was they gave themselves to the Lord. And once we have done that, and the Lord owns us, that He is truly our Master, that giving of any other lesser thing is of lesser importance. Because once we recognize the ownership over everything, that we are just stewards, it changes our perspective on our all of our activities, not just our giving, but all of our activities. We then looked at giving as a grace and not commandment. And you cannot miss this in Paul's description here. It's going to seem like I've wandered away from that this morning a little later on when we get into uh, the message for the day. That we walked away from that. We're getting more in the commandment, less in the grace. But that's not the case. And hopefully I'll explain that as we go through. We learned that giving is no longer a commandment. That's an Old Testament concept. Paul says, this is not my commandment to you. This is God's grace to you. That if we give by commandment, there is no way that we can really give in the manner that Paul describes here uh, of a cheerful giving and a, and a giver that is sowing bountifully so that he could reap bountifully. Now, once we understand that this is a grace that God gives us, we would violate that grace, and in fact, many are doing that today, by insisting that it is a commandment to give. But I cannot find that in the New Testament. It is a grace. And if you are here not in a giving spirit, then don't give. But the ones that are missing out are not the recipients. But you, the giver, is the one that misses the grace of God in their life. And over and over again throughout chapter 8, we've seen the reference again and again that this is a grace of God bestowed to some churches, bestowed to believers, that if they want to function within that grace, that there is great blessing there. Not just material blessing. In fact, that's not even in the realm of this passage, really, but spiritual blessing. We looked at Philippians and other passages that talked about the heavenly account that is being invested in by those who discover and welcome this grace of God in their life. And so we don't command a tithe, we don't command certain giving levels, and nor will you ever see this pastor investigate whether you're doing it or not, because frankly, it's not a commandment. Nothing I'm really fundamentally concerned about. I think it's unfortunate that many Christians walk out of church missing this grace and the joy that comes from it. But again, if our ownership issues aren't dealt with, this grace will not ever be in your life. Because until you give ownership of your life and all that you are and have to God, You cannot expect this grace to just come flooding in. They are in this order. First, we recognize ownership. Then, we receive this grace. And last week, we looked at some of the effects of giving. We saw the great need, and we saw that here we associate more with Corinth than Jerusalem because we are not the needy, we are the rich. 
and that the objective for giving is first to glorify God. It has a secondary objective, which is to care for the saints, not to build buildings, um, not to uh, (laughs) invest in extensive things of this world, but to care for God's people. This is the second priority. First goal, glorify God. And we're going to see that really borne out a lot more next week. But we find that we have turned it around and so that people's giving is only in response to a budgetary need, only in response to a building program, only in response to some emergency that we set out, instead of a consistent act of God's grace in our life that is going to be there whether there is a present crisis or need or not. But when those crises happen, if we have established a good pattern of God's ownership, of God's grace in our life, we can then respond with even greater giving. Again, these are chronologically in order. Must have the first. God must be your owner. Must have the second, then, God's grace. Then we can respond with greater giving when crises arise. But it doesn't mean I don't ever give unless there is one. Rather, I look for the opportunities, like the Macedonians, to give wherever and whenever I can. And I look for ways to bring my life into some level of similarity to those with need. Paul here, we talked about last week that the idea isn't that you be hungry so somebody else would be full. The idea is that there would be equality. While the world has tried to emulate this in different political systems of socialism or communism, we really see that they're failures because they fail to take into account the other passages of Scripture and the idea that this is not driven by law. Cannot be. It must be driven by grace. That out of grace we respond to what is around us. And so if I need to lower my lifestyle so it's a little bit closer to maybe some of my brethren in Christ in other lands and have a few less of what's so American that I might meet some of their basic needs. And we talked about basic needs, right, last week? Food and clothing. The Bible describes. Short list. List I'm not really comfortable with, to tell you the truth. I have a lot more that I think are basic needs of food and clothing. Electricity. House. Car. On it goes, right? Ridiculous. And so we find that we have a standard of living that prevents giving and really encourages materialism and ungodliness and becomes a god to us. So in order to give, like Paul's calling the Corinthians, demand something of us, not uh, sacrificing essentials, but of bringing into control our decadence. That's really all it's about. When we talk about Americans tightening their belt straps because of the poor economy, 
Um, what does that really mean? It means we go out to eat a little bit less often. Uh, it means we turn the thermostat down a little bit. Does it mean you're missing meals? Does it mean that your closets are empty? Does it mean that you're living in a box? Your old family? No, we think that we're really suffering if sacrificing if we have to give up ice cream for a few weeks or months. And so we look at this objective, one of the objectives of lowering a standard of living among the wealthy that we can be an encouragement to those that lack those opportunities but yet not violating the commandments of God that says if man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Not violating those commandments. We come now to another aspect of giving. And it's really not about giving at all, my message this morning. It's about your word. It's about faithfulness. It's about completing what you've started. It's about what do you really want. Before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity now to look in your word. We pray that we might be open to it and allow God's word to penetrate our mind, our hearts, our lives. We might learn from the Corinthian example and recognize that we share it. We share their circumstances so much. We share sometimes in their sin and error. Lord, help us also to share in their spirit of a willingness to change, to repent, to set things right. Lord, we need your help to have this spirit. We thank you for it. You have promised it. Guard this time. It might be your word of truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Paul now gets into the specifics of the Corinthian giving. We've looked at the Macedonians. We've looked at some of the principles of giving. But let's look at the Corinthian giving specifically. They were approached by Paul about the great need in Judea, about the famine going on there. The Corinthians got excited about the opportunity to share in Christian love with this other body of saints. Saints that they had never met, may never meet until glory, but they're excited about the opportunity because... This is the place where Christianity was born. And from there, it welled up and and has spread throughout the Roman Empire. Here's an opportunity for those who had received a spiritual blessing from Jerusalem (coughs) to respond with a material blessing. And they're excited about it. They're, They're thrilled. And so Paul says, well, what can I count on you for? How much can I expect? How much need should we... Write you down for. Let's put you in the book and let's see where this excitement leads to. And they make a commitment. And Paul talks about this commitment. It says that you began something, verse 10. It says, and this advice I give, uh, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now also you must complete the doing of it. That there was a readiness of desire to, so there also may be a completion of what you have. And so the Corinthians had a great desire. They probably immediately gave Paul some funds uh, a year earlier with a commitment that you will get this until the famine's done. 
Paul then goes out with that testimony, shares it with all the other churches. The Corinthian church just responded. They saw the need. God got a hold of their hearts. They made commitments. They were thrilled with the opportunity. They were cheerful. They were generous. Everything that Paul describes here was going on, and it was exciting times. And for Paul, he could just imagine the impact of of this upon the people there in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. And he shared it with everywhere he went. And he calls that boasting. That is, he spoke of their commitment to others. Sharing it with them. And the result was uh, a multiple, multiplying, there we go, a multiplying of that commitment. As the Corinthians responded, everyone else says, well, if they can do it, why can't we? And they got a hold of the same vision, the same excitement. And whether they were in the poverty-stricken Macedonia or other regions of Achaia, and, 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 oh, which is more in Asia, and the other side of the Aegean Sea, uh, other areas around Greece, people got excited about it. Yes, we can all help out. All initiated by this church at Corinth who heard about the need, looked at what they, their resources that they had available, and said, we can meet that need. We can address it. And we will. A year has gone by. The famine is still very real in Jerusalem. And Paul is now on his way there. He has perhaps sent ahead some of the funds that they have received. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians. He is now going to come back around and plans on collecting all the rest from not only Corinth, but from all the churches and delivering it by hand to Jerusalem. He has asked each church to send a representative to be the kind of church treasurer. I'm going to send a representative. I want each church to do that. So the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, whatever church. So Paul has an entourage of of deliverance. So Paul isn't himself carrying the money. I think that's great. A great testimony. Paul says, listen, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm accountable too. And it's important that I protect myself too from either false accusation that I absconded with any of these funds or with even the temptation to do so. I'm going to guard myself from these things. And so each church is setting a representative with that church's offering to make sure it gets delivered properly. And so Paul's return visiting to these churches and and collecting not only these funds, but the people who are carrying it with them. And he is sending this letter ahead, among all the reasons it's sent, this couple of chapters are about making sure that you're ready to finish what you started. You started this whole thing, Corinth. Now are you ready to finish it? And I'm a little afraid. I'm a little afraid from your history that you may not be able to follow through on your commitment. You wanted to. You had a great desire. And you started the process. Now, my question to you, are you going to follow it through to the end? And this becomes the question for you this morning. Not just in terms of giving and 
financial commitments, but it's really a question of the Christian life. This is a question that measures faithfulness. Are you ready to finish what you've started? Are you ready to do what you claim to want? Are you ready to put completion to desire? I am convinced that most every Christian wants to live for God. I talk with people and say, oh, I want to. I want to have this area and this area and this area and this area in my life in conformity with God's Word. And then generally in the context of that statement, there's that dreaded three-letter word that comes along, but. But. And these things happen. Things get in the way. We have a desire... But, I just don't see how I can do it. But things came up, but I got busy. But it's hard. I hear all these buts. Regularly. And the fact is is that this is the measure, and really the test of faithfulness, is the willingness and the drive to overcome the interruptions of the Christian life. All the things that the world wants to bring to bear upon your life, in addition to all the things you bring to bear upon your life, from your old nature, it's still, it's dead, but it's hanging around, still has influence, that brings in, that disrupts these desires within Christians to do and be godly people. And so when I sit down, I say, well, what do you want your marriage to be like? Well, I want it to be like this. Well, then you're going to have to do God's commands for you. And then, Oh, but you don't know the guy I'm married to. I said, well, yeah, I do. Usually by then I do. You don't know how hard it is. Yes, we do. There's nothing new under the sun. Your life isn't any harder in any category than anyone else's out there. In fact... I would contend it's easier. Because you have so many resources available to you, and your life is so comfortable in this country, you don't really know what real need is. But we come up with these things. I got so busy. I, 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 and by the way, we have a period of a season every year where we set out and lay down all the wants. All the things, the desires we have, they're all usually good. We call that New Year's Day. Right? I resolve. That's a very strong word. Resolutions. I resolve. And we're going to lose weight, and we're going to get fit, and we're going to get a job, or a better job, or I'm going to get this training, or I'm going to go to school and get this, or, or how about I'm going to read through my Bible this year. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm convinced that most Christians want to read the Bible. I'm convinced most Christians want to be prayers. I'm convinced that most Christians want to be godly. But there comes these things into our life that just run interference to it, and we allow them to. And they disrupt 
all those desires. And Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says, listen, you had this great desire, and that's exciting, and, and it's great, and I applaud you for it, and you had a good start at it. But ultimately, the Christian experience isn't measured by your desire. It's not measured by your start. It's measured by your finish. It's measured over here when you have to stand and give an accounting in the day of Christ. That's when it's measured. Well, Pastor, I wanted to, but there is no but in anyone's life that is different than anyone else's. The Corinthians, because they said, well, you know, the economy's kind of shifted since then. They could have lost the vision. They said, well, that was a year ago, you know. You're going to hold us to that? I mean, we said that a year ago. Things have come up. The church may have had some problems. There were divisions. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, right? Maybe the church was splitting up and they were a little concerned. Maybe there wasn't this, this unanimity anymore about dealing with this. Maybe there was questions about was there really need in Judea. See, there's all these buts that can come up to interfere with our commitments. Oh, I'm committed to Christ, but it's hard. Brethren, Probably the, it is a little harder for you. I think Jesus said it right when he said that it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you are the rich. So it's probably a little harder for you. You have a lot more gods than everyone else. It's as hard as for you as it was for Israel in the day of the prophets, the Old Testament, who lived in paneled houses, had summer homes, had all these wonderful things, and they assumed that that equaled the blessing of God, and therefore they assumed that they were right with God, and there was no reason to change, and these prophets show up and say, Repent of having this dualistic worship that you worship Jehovah on Saturday and the gods of the nations the rest of the week. Well, it was hard for them to understand those crazy prophets walking around in funny clothes and smelling bad. And I don't know if they smelled bad, but some of them walked around naked for three years, Isaiah did. This is what you're going to look like. You're going to be drug out of this place. All this stuff you're trusting is going to be taken away. Then what? So yeah, I believe there are some hardships because you've grown accustomed to comfort. And it gets in the way of the Christian life. Because I want to share with you something that is not being said very often in circles today by pastors. The Christian life is not about earthly comforts. It's just not about that. It's about giving up earthly comforts for heavenly reward about having a long-term plan that understands that this is really a, a time when I'm in a foreign land with, with, with no resources except for those granted to me by God to use, not for my comfort here, but to the kingdom's concerns. You see, Paul is concerned. He comes to the Corinthians and he says, listen, I'm a little worried. In fact, I'm so worried, I'm going to send some people ahead just to make sure that you're ready. Because if you're not ready and the Macedonians show up, what is that going to do to your testimony in the region? 
You might say, well, this sounds a little bit like a pressure tactic, Pastor. Well, it is. But it's a good one. And I like to use it on people. And the pressure is, people are watching you. They're watching you. They know what you desired. That's been declared. They know that you call yourself a Christian. They know you've made these commitments in your life. They know that these things are supposed to be important to you. They know you started that out and you had this testimony in your baptism or whatever and and you had all that. They know how you started. The Macedonians and the people in Achaia and all uh, the region, all around the Aegean Sea, they heard all about the Corinthians. They knew all about the, the, the start. Paul says, listen, this will be a disaster if they show up and you're not ready to finish. That you just abandon the project. It's a disaster. This is going to be something that's going to shame me, Paul says. It's going to shame you. And ultimately, it's going to shame Christ. And this should be our concern, one of the concerns about failing to live up to what we say we want. Oh, Lord, Pastor, I want to be godly. Well, then, what's holding you back? What's holding you back, really? That you don't trust God to be godly? that you're afraid of the world hating you, of not having enough friends. You know, the kind of friends that will gossip about you, backstab you, and drag you into all kinds of sin with them. Those are the friends you're worried about, because you're not worried about godly friends abandoning you. You're worried about ungodly friends hating you. Right? I might lose my job, but pastor, my family doesn't like me anymore. Well... Okay, who's your family? See, you're still connected to an earthly family. But why aren't we concerned about whether God's family likes me anymore? Why why aren't we concerned about what their interests are? And yet we let an ungodly family drive our decision-making and drive our life and drive our time and really drive us away from, and they will always drive us away from being godly because they're godless. And your godliness will always make them feel uncomfortable, and so it will always be a priority for them to interrupt your patterns of godliness. Whether it's being in church, whether it's Bible reading, whether it's talking about things to the Lord, whether it's just doing good stuff instead of nasty stuff. They'll always want to keep that from happening. And that's nothing new. That was around in Corinth's day. It's wonderful that you had a willing mind. Paul says that here. It says, um, verse 12, there's first a willing mind. You want to. Now you're going to be measured. You're not going to be measured by my faith. You're not going to be measured by other people's lives. You're going to be measured by what, Bible says, by what you have. God has a level of expectation based upon what he knows you're capable of. And the Bible makes it very clear that God will not allow any of you to be tempted beyond that capacity for you to resist it. And so when all these things come to bear in your life, and we crawl into our little turtle shell and say, I can't, I can't live for God. 
You're making a statement about God, that He's not good, that He's not faithful, that He can't be trusted, that it's too hard, meaning that God isn't fair. Paul says, listen, your willing mind is accepted according to what one has, not according to what you don't have. God is not going to invite you into a life that you are incapable of living. He has called you into a holy lifestyle. He has equipped us with everything to live that life. And it's time we put away the excuses the rationalizations of why we can't possibly live godly. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Either He's there or He's not. If you're resisting the Holy Spirit, of course you don't have the resources. That doesn't mean He's gone. It means that you have diminished His influence to such a point that you aren't living in the Spirit. You aren't walking in Him. But He has promised to give you the resources to live a godly life. And when you claim you can't, you are saying to God, you have failed me. You are making an accusation against the one you call Savior and Lord. The fact is, God has given us the resources. He has granted us His Spirit to lead us into all truth. He leadeth me, we sang. O blessed thought. He has promised to lead us. The problem isn't God's failure to lead. The problem is the sheep don't follow. They're wandering off. He has given us His Word. His Word is truth and to be trusted. The problem isn't that we don't have truth. The problem is we don't know it. It's not a priority to us and we don't really believe it. It really says that, Pastor? And I've had people say that to me, too. Do I really have to do that? Well, no, you don't. You don't have to. You have a choice. But you say that you want to be this, be godly. You want a godly home. You want a godly life. You want holiness. You want this. Well, here's the instruction manual. And i got to tell you something. Guys aren't the only ones who hate following the instruction manual. Yeah, I know all the guys, you know, you get something that some assembly required. We are sure we don't need the directions, right? The Christian life, there's a lot of assembly required. These are the instructions. You can throw them out, and the result is you will fail. That's what is being the result. And that's why Christian, quote-unquote, Christian marriages that start off with this great desire, I'm going to have this a willing mind, and God gives us the resources to fulfill that desire, but we violate it. We disregard it. We claim ignorance over it. A powerful resource God's given us, given us other resources within the church, Paul himself becomes a resource for the Corinthians, saying, listen, you started out well. Let's finish it. He has a very different spirit here with Corinth than, saying Galatians. 
In Galatians, Paul was dealing with a group of churches that were getting caught up into a heresy. And he says, listen, you started out so well. Who hindered you? How could you let this come into your life? And Paul's letter to the Galatians is a very potent one. Where Paul, just, I mean, he's name-calling. Can you imagine that? And he's wishing bad stuff on false teachers. You know, I wish they don't get cut off. I mean, he, he has no patience for them whatsoever. <laughs> kind of reminds you of Jesus Christ and the Pharisees, how he had no patience for those guys. He comes in, he says, but his statement of the Corinthians is, oh, foolish or Galatians, oh, foolish Galatians. You started out so well. Who hindered you? What got in your way? It wasn't God. Don't put the blame on him. Let's put it squarely where it belongs. We are foolish to let others come in and pervert the gospel when we have the gospel. To let others come in and interrupt our life and drag us into stuff or away from stuff. And we know it's not going to please God, but yet we get pulled right into it because we have some idea that these things are important. They're important to society, but why are we concerned about what's important to God? Why doesn't that measure on our scale? Why is it such a tiny little thing compared to this requirements of society, of, the, of norm, normalcy, whatever that is, of family? Paul drives the Corinthians again. What's it going to take now to finish? Enough of talking about the fact that the danger is there, it was there for them, it's there for us today, that we have a testimony to secure. But there's also one other aspect, if we jump to verse 24 of chapter 8. This is, therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. He understood what started this whole thing. What started the thing with the Corinthians where they got so excited and made this huge commitment that they were now being called upon to finish was their love for the people in Judea. Their love of the saints. And Paul takes them back and says, let's just revisit that a little bit. This is your chance to prove that that was real. It's time to prove your love for God, your love for His people. And ultimately, every time that you are tested in the area of fulfilling the resolves of the Christian life, and they're powerful. I love that song. We might have to sing that one in closing, that I'm resolved no longer to linger in the world's delights. I'm just not, I'm resolved no longer to, to spend any time there i got something higher and greater and better that I want to be engaged in, and that is driven by the love of God, and we have an opportunity to, to express that love to God by fulfilling what we've started. Finish the job. And the job I'm talking about isn't your pocketbook. It's not some financial commitment, because we don't make those in this church. We're talking about your Christian life. Finish the job. You began well. But God isn't measuring the beginning. 
The finish line isn't at the beginning. It's at the end. Is the proof of the reality of the beginning. That if it was genuine, you had a genuine love for God's people because of the love of God in your life, then you're going to have to prove it. In front of all the other churches, you're going to have to prove it. And yes, brethren, you have something to prove. You have to prove your faith. You have to prove the difference God's made in your life. You're going to have to prove, not just to the world, you're going to have to prove it to churches, to people like me. That when you come and say, Pastor, I really want to do this, and what you're going to hear from me a lot of times, I'll prove it. Some of you have already heard it. Prove it. It's time to put something where our mouth is. Prove it. By the doing of it. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write. I didn't really need to write to you, but because you're willing. Like I said, I believe all Christians that I've encountered seem to have a desire, a willingness that they want to be godly. Verse 2 ends with, Your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet, I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain and disrespect. I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. We try in our church here to prepare you to be ready for what's going to come at you. From family, from work, from society, from the media, you're going to be inundated with every effort to drag you away from a godly lifestyle. Your responsibility is to be ready to face that. To be strong enough by God's Word and His Spirit to be equipped to stand and take a stand for Christ and to say, no, you will not drag me into that. You cannot put any force applied here, whether it be any, some guilt thing. My, I, I was raised in a guilt home, okay? My wife, my mom, my wife, my mom could guilt me, guilt anybody into anything, okay? Um, but she did it so much that now I'm kind of impervious to it, so you have a hard time guilting me into anything at all. Um, but for some people it works, and we respond, every time we respond and give in, um, we just become that much weaker. And Paul says, listen, you have to prove your love. And it's fine to have a willingness, but listen, that willingness and your zeal, your desire so strong, has stirred up others, now it's time to make sure it's not in vain. Don't make it worthless by not finishing it. And so to help them out in finishing the deal, closing it up, finishing the commitment, sustaining their testimony, proving their love, Paul says, I'm going to give you one other advantage, and that is I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I'm sending some guys ahead of time, and they're going to direct you to get your act together and finish the job. And God, in addition to His Spirit, in addition to His Word, brings into your life people who will say, didn't you make a commitment when you were baptized that you were going to be a different person? That the old person was dead and now you're living for Christ? Didn't you make that commitment? Don't you call yourself part of the family of God and joined by the blood of Jesus Christ that that's your relatives now? Didn't we make that commitment? Didn't you make a commitment that you could trust the Lord for all things? And Aren't you going to finish that? 
God brings people into your life. Sometimes they're preachers obnoxious like me that'll just keep hammering it. Sometimes they might be a child. Every now and then kids come up and say something, you're like, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. Because I said so. Don't you love it when kids remind you of your promises? Wherever that comes from, God brings them into your life to shake you back to remembering you have something to prove. Something to prove to yourself, to prove to the world, to prove to God's people, ultimately to prove to God himself that I love you. And you can declare it as much as you want. You can write it down. You can wear jewelry and t-shirts that declare it. But ultimately, God's not interested or impressed by any of those. He is impressed by obedience, by a life of faith. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm not just going to start. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it no matter the cost till Christ comes. So Paul sends some people to help to prepare them to do it. And the alternative is shame. In the area of giving, without proper preparation, if we aren't prepared to give, Paul says it goes from being a generous gift to being just something you don't even want to really do, but you're going to have to, because I made that promise back then. It becomes something that the Bible describes as burdensome. That's an old term, burdensome. And we talked about that when we talked to through, taught through First John that real obedience that matters to God is not burdensome. That if I just go through, I say, "Well, I'll do that because I have to because I'm a Christian." <sighs> this is not obedience that pleases God. It's not obedience that pleases your parents, right? Parents, you're here. Is that the kind of obedience that you're just overjoyed with from your children? If I have to. Right? We just can't wait to hear that from our kids, right? We go, oh, that's such a blessing, honey. Right? No, what we'd like to do is just smack them and then send them in a corner. I'll do it instead. Stand over there and cry. So we really like, but we let them obey burdensomely. That we had to tear them away from their video game to go do something for mom or dad. Well, brethren, we think somehow God is going to sit up there and applaud our obedience when we treat it like a burden. The way to keep obedience from being a burden is preparedness. We prepare ourselves for obedience. How do we do that? We gather around ourselves guys like this. He says, I'm going to send you some fellas, and they're going to prepare you ahead of time. I'm going to have a preparedness that when I am encountering this, here's my response. When I encounter this, here's going to be my response. I encounter this, here's going to be my response. And I've learned that lesson over the years by some of you. Um, I had one, <laughs> when we were building our house, 
uh, I remember Bob Van Allsburg was there, and he he not a carpenter, okay? Hammer is a strange thing to him. He's a writer guy. And uh, I remember him just smashing his thumb with that hammer, and I was like, oh, you could just hear the thing. Just, oh. And he goes, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I was like, Bob. He's like, I knew it was going to happen. I prepared myself that if I hit myself with a hammer, I was going to yell that. Preparedness keeps you from it, violating your promises. He says, listen, guys, be prepared, and it will make your giving cheerful and generous, and, and you'll enjoy it because you're ready, and, and, it, and it's not a begrudging thing. It's not something that's going to be dragged out of you. It's not something that you're going to wish you could avoid. There'll be something you'll say, I'm ready for this. And here's going to be my response. When my family tries to put the screws on me to not live a Christian life, here's going to be my response. The Lord is my Father. And who are my parents, or who are my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters, and my cousins? Who are they? Well, Jesus' response I share with the teens Wednesday night. Well, they're the ones that obey God. These are my mother, my Brothers, my sisters. When I get in the workplace and I'm given this pressure to not work, because, you know, if you have too high of a work ethic now, you make everyone else look bad. So there's a lot of pressure at work not to work. I know it's there. I know it's real. How are you going to respond? Are you going to be ready to say, I'm not really working for you guys. I have a boss and I'm here to make him money. That's my goal. It's not my primary goal. My primary goal is to please God. So I'm going to work. And at school, it means I'm going to study. I'm going to apply myself. I know no one else wants you to apply yourself. How are you going to respond? When the world calls you away from godliness, you must be prepared to address it. You must have a response ready. And it will guard you from begrudging obedience. If I'm prepared to obey God, and the time comes when it actually is tested, what's my spirit? You see, if I'm prepared to obey God, I come into the test, now I'm like, all right, I get to use this stuff. And when I've applied it, and I walk out of there godly, guess what? Now, instead of begrudging, I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed. Because I've been prepared, and I have been looking for that time when I can just implement this, that I've prepared in my heart that I'm going to be godly in that circumstance. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be Christ-like there. And sometimes that means preparing myself not to react. And being a pastor, I encounter a lot of people that just want to generate a reaction out of me. Because they know you're a preacher, and they'll, they'll, they'll offer you a beer, they'll offer you, they'll curse at you, they'll, they'll do things just to see if you'll react. And I've always just committed myself, I'm not going to respond to that stuff. They're not going to get what they want out of me. And then when I, because I'm prepared ahead of time, the chance to implement that, I walk away rejoicing for the opportunity that I can share Christ in those situations. I can take a stand and I can walk away fulfilled. 
the Corinthians had a chance to obey God without burdensomeness, which means they had to be prepared. And brother, what I want to encourage you to do is prepare your hearts, prepare your lives, prepare your minds by spending some time in God's Word, in prayer, engaging God, and knowing what you face. You know your your where the pressure points of your life are going to come from, whether they're from within your own heart and mind and life, whether they're from the media. You know where those pressure points are. If they come from family, if they come from so-called friends, if they call, come from co-workers, you know where those pressure points are that are disrupting your commitment to live a godly life. You know where they are. Bring them before the Lord. Prepare yourself to say, how can I respond godly? So that I can walk away from that with something to testify to. We don't like to use the word boast, right? Something to rejoice in. Something to talk about. Paul says, listen, I want those Macedonians to get in the boat leaving Corinth and say, wow, they're strong finishers. How would that make the Corinthians feel? Well, they've proven their love. They've established their testimony. They've walked godly. They've fulfilled what they started. And Paul essentially is referencing that if you want to turn obedience into a joy, you're going to have to repair your heart to finish the job. What does it take to finish? Everyone can finish. What does it take to... Or everyone can start it. Everyone can begin. What does it take to finish it? It takes some preparation to be able to do that. Every runner knows that you don't go out to run a long race without preparation. By running a lot of little short races that are very attainable. A lot of little short workouts that are attainable and then expanding them, extending them so that you're ready for the big one. You don't get out there, and well, we do see it. We, we run in several 5Ks now and then, and you can see the people that are out there, and they're just happy as all get out there. They're just going to blow everybody away. They haven't prepared at all, but they're, they just want to run, and they go out there, and they take off, and for about 300 meters, they're just tearing up the field. And then, wham, comes... Oh, this is a race that's a long one. And they're walking. And struggling to finish. Because they're unprepared. Brethren, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Prepare yourself to endure. That is genuine faith. Let's pray.